Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. On today's episode, we have Lauren. Hello. And Justin. Many scientists toil for many hours on ideas that people laugh at, think foolish, they get mocked by university academics. But even these scientists, after toiling for many years, get their recognition they deserve from the Ig Nobel Prizes. We're going to dig into the winners of this year's prizes. So, what are the Ig Nobel Prizes, you might ask? Well, much like the much-venerated and venerable Nobel Prizes, the Ig Nobel Prizes are set up to reward and proclaim the greatness of scientific research. Now, some scientific research may not be as sexy and glamorous as every other type of scientific research, but it's still very valuable and provides useful contributions to our knowledge. So what makes the Ig Nobel Awards different? The Ig Nobel Awards actually dives into, specifically, areas of research and questions that would have otherwise gone unanswered, either because people hadn't thought to ask those questions or hadn't got around to really answering them just yet. So it's an award that celebrates the ingenuity of research and some of the creative scientists that are out there. It's not ridiculing science, but it's honouring those who actually undertake some research in a tongue-in-cheek way, but also actually contribute something very important to understanding of the universe. Now, these are done um, every year out in Cambridge, so that, for this week, of course, will be our city of science. Um, there's a lot of other people who are involved. It's very closely related um, to the Harvard Radcliffe Society of Physics, um, as well as the Annals of Improbable Research. And those together come up with a list of scientists and research that would be up for the Ig Nobel Prize. And each year they hold a great ceremony where they award the prizes and uh, make the proclamations of which research is out there. So... If you aren't conducting research, you can also nominate yourself or be nominated for the prize. So it's not just limited to to some small minority researchers. The um, prizes are awarded to people from across the globe. And we'll delve into some of the categories and then the specific stories. So broadly speaking, there are prizes for medicine, psychology, biology and astronomy, safety engineering, which is a very important one, physics, chemistry. These are all very standard. But then we get into the bit more interesting ones. Archaeology, peace, probability, and public health. Now, this is very similar to the Nobel Prize, um, but and that's obviously how it started, but where it ends up is uh, much more entertaining, as we'll delve into in this year's winners. Hey, Justin, you know what's the superpower I've always wanted? Uh, reading minds. Nope. Flying. Nope. Being invisible? Uh-uh, I'm just going to tell you at this point. I've, I've really admired the basilisk lizard, and what I've really wanted is their ability to walk on water. Like certain religious significant people. Yes, exactly like certain religious significant people. And I... lizards. <laughs> Specifically basilisk, basilisk lizards. I'm glad that they walk on water and not freeze people with their, like, death stare. I mean, it's been common, like, um, in the past, ideas of the ability to walk on water. I mean... Apparently, ninjas were supposed to be able to create these amazing water-walking shoes, and I think, was it Leonardo da Vinci created shoes that were supposed to be able to let him walk on water? Yeah, and it's actually quite common amongst some types of water strider insects. If you look at the surface of a pond, you see plenty of bugs that actually walk across the water. 
And there's also birds and lizards that can actually walk on the surface of the water. But most of these creatures, as you would have guessed from the names that we talked about, are very small. Mm-hmm. And they're also quite... Uh, have interesting body masses and body types. And they usually get through um, using muscle power and speed, and as well as uh, a really strong weight ratio of muscle power to body mass. Unfortunately, we don't have that no, we muscle have a, power to body well, mass. Exactly. Well, we're really big and also really heavy, and our muscles aren't comparatively as strong as, say, a water-striding insect. <laughs> Researchers um, from the various universities in Italy, including the University of Milan, University of Rome, Laboratory of Neuromotor Physiology which also sounds like an amazing place. So a bunch of researchers received funding sorry, from the Italian Ministry of Health and the Italian Space Agency to investigate under what conditions would a human being be able to walk on water. So this is what this paper won an ignoble prize for their cutting-edge research into what conditions need to be met in order to satisfy humans walking on water. Obviously, these would have to be pretty extreme conditions, I'm guessing. That's right. So what they did is they took the basilisk lizard and they've taken its, um, taken its model for its motion and, take, and the way it walks on water and applied that and scaled it up to human size and mass and then looked at what predicted body masses, stride frequency and gravity would be necessary for a person to run on water. The end result of all this theory, theory uh, testing and then actual tests produced on this was that a human being would be able to walk on water if they were on the moon. So if you're on the moon and there was a pool of water present, you would be able to walk across it in the same way that a basilisk lizard is able to do it. Would you have to walk really, really fast? Yes, and that's how they kind of like run across and dash across the water. No casual stroll, but they do actually walk on water. So what they actually did was they ran tests in... um, by progressively weight loading and unloading a person in a wading pool to confirm the theoretical predictions. So it wasn't just like they did some maths and they said, oh yeah, a human being would be able to do this. They actually ran computerized simulations models as well as testing for humans in in the relationship with humans in water to actually come up with the requirements for a human to actually walk across water, which is really interesting. One of the things though that you think about a lizard, though, a lizard have a um, a kind of the tail, which they use as a balancing segment to sort of enable to have a high speed with, um, with some uh, interesting stabilisation Are you telling me we're going to have to walk around with tails on the moon to be able to walk on water? Well, um, trunk stabilisation, which is what they refer to when they're talking about tails, um, is actually one of the useful parts of it. But it, we can sort of do a similar process with the human gait. So there's ways you can actually adjust the human gait to mimic the kind of walking method that you see with trunk stabilisation. Like our body has designed in some of those uh, features already. So... Italian researchers have been doing a lot of advanced science using flippers and a wading pool to confirm under what conditions a human being would be able to run on water. And the result is you would need to be at basically 20, oh, 16% uh, simulated Earth gravity, which is equivalent to being on the moon or Io or Europa. So that's some really cutting-edge research there, uh, helping you understand how to walk on water. Unfortunately, I don't think we're going to be doing that anytime soon. Yes, but if we go to the moon, stay tuned. Hey, Justin, what do humans, seals, and birds all have in common? Uh, we like balls and playing in water. That, that's all I've got that kind of like links humans, seals, and birds. <laughs> Actually, I'm sure we all have those in common. But what we also have in common is how we navigate. Okay, so how... 
birds I thought navigate using magnetic fields and seals I haven't really thought of them as like master navigators and we use GPS and iPhones mostly now it turns out we all use um, the method of navigation of using the stars so I mean you know in the past where where you can get um, maps of constellations and figure out which way is north according to that well it turns out that not only do seals and birds also do this but dung beetles do as well sorry dung, dung beetles yes dung beetles now, I can understand birds because birds migrate and they head south for the mm-hmm. winter and they do all sorts of things that actually involve substantial navigation skills. And I guess seals, if they want to also migrate to suitable warmer waters in different seasons, would need to also navigate quite well. Humans navigate because we need to you know, get to certain places. But dung beetles? Where do they need to travel? And how far can they actually travel? They're rolling a giant ball of dung. Dung beetles actually use starry skies to navigate away from competition. Oh, so they actually use it as a way to sort of traverse further territory and guide themselves away from where they know competitors are. Exactly. And it's been found out that dung beetles, um, their ability to navigate has actually been impaired on cloudy nights, which has suggested to us that maybe they had actually used the stars to navigate as well. So this research is one of the winners of the Nobel Prize, and this has been done out of Sweden, South Africa, and Australia. So a bunch of very talented researchers have dedicated some substantial time to this. But what they've been looking at is not just the impact of stars, but also specifically certain celestial features. So what what is going on and how did they investigate and test this, Lauren? What the researchers actually did was they took a group of dung beetles and put them in a planetarium where they simulated um, the Milky Way and tracked um, where they migrated to. So they did a couple of controls, so they, but they put them outside, they put them outside on cloudy days, mm-hmm. they put them outside in starry conditions... And then they put them in underneath a planetarium and then simulated various levels of starlight, including the Milky Way. Mm-hmm. And what they found is that under the Milky Way, it was actually the critical point for actually helping them get really strong navigation. So if it was just some stars, they weren't as good. They performed similarly like the overcast, but if the Milky Way was present, they did amazingly. And so some of the results for actually, if you look at, if you look at the paths... <laughs> Um, for what they uh, what they actually traverse. You probably wouldn't think of a dung beetle as uh, going in a straight line, but when they actually can see the stars, they head in relatively straight paths away from each other. But if you put them in a cloudy or an overcast sky, or if they can't see the Milky Way, they just go nuts and go around in circles and don't really avoid each other at all. And that's really interesting that the stars, and specifically the Milky Way, like that big band of light, has such an impact on a dung beetle, which is a creature that you wouldn't ever really thought of being a stargazer. And that just goes to show that the universe that we live in is very, very interesting and useful for all sorts of creatures. We might think of ourselves as particularly unique and special because we can use GPS and we can navigate using the stars and sail the seas, but we're not the only ones to do so. And other creatures, even the small dung beetles, also do the same. Now, hats do have to go off to these researchers for coming up with the ingenuity of putting a bunch of dung beetles into a planetarium <laughs> in order to confirm the hypothesis. But just make, though, I think we need to explore. If birds and seals have been known to do the same thing, have we ever put a seal in a planetarium? I think that might be harder to test, but it should definitely be done. Like, do you have like an aquatic planetarium and see if like, the starlight is reflected beneath the ocean? Do you think the Milky, the Milky Way also has that effect on them, or is it just stars in general? Well, that's right. Maybe they follow the North Star or the Southern Cross, depending on the, North, or the Arctic or Antarctic uh, seals. So there's a lot of areas of extra research here, but it just goes to show that some of the things you can do if you put your mind to it. So this prize won the combined 
Ig Nobel Prize for Astronomy and Biology, and I think that's going to be one of the first times they've done that for some very interesting <laughs> research linking the two fields together in an innovative way. Justin, do you think I'm pretty? Actually, no, I don't need you to tell me I'm pretty. I know I'm pretty. Well, that's good that you have that level of self-confidence and reassurance in yourself. You also don't need to worry about being judged on your looks or being based on your merits, because that's not what we here at the YSA are about. <laughs> but some researchers in France, and also the Netherlands and the United States for some bizarre reason, have joined in on a study to answer a question, or rather confirm something that I think we all know. And this paper is titled, Beauty is in the Eye of the Beer Holder. And it's a study into how people think they are drunk also think they are attractive. Now, this is a really interesting study, and it gets to the question of, if you had a couple of drinks, you might think of yourself as being cooler, more sophisticated, you're so funny, and people have often had this idea, but this study went out to measure if it was true, and then also do an analysis of whether it was the alcohol that made you think that, or if it was just the thought that you had had alcohol that made you think that. So it was testing the placebo effect. Yes. So... Lauren's going to go into a bit of detail now about how they actually set up this experiment and what they did, because it's quite ingenious. So what the researchers did was they had four groups. They split um, the participants into two groups, one that would have alcohol, um, would think they have alcohol, and the other one, the other group who didn't think they had alcohol, and those groups were split again into those who actually received alcohol and those who didn't, um, just to eliminate the placebo effect of well, if you actually get alcohol but you don't think you're drinking, does your um, confidence still rise or doesn't it? And then to test this, what they did was the um, researchers had actually pretended that they were a food food company. Yeah, a food slash advertising company. And so they got the participants after they consumed the alcohol or thought they consumed the alcohol. In a cocktail form. So they mixed them up this nice cocktail. So it wasn't mm-hmm. like they were just giving them a glass of beer, which is pretty easy to tell. They gave them a, a very cocktail. It can often be hard to distinguish a mocktail and a cocktail. And then they'd ask them to uh, prepare a speech about um, A new the product, product. Yeah. yeah. And then they videotaped the speech. Then they gave it to the participants to watch back. And the participant had to rate how good, how confident, how funny, how interesting, how attractive they felt they look on a scale to so see were, if it was an effective message. They were rating themselves, basically. Yes. And what they found was... What did they find? Well, they found, they found that um, one of the important parts they then did was they then got a t- panel of 22 independent judges to then come and assess all the videotapes and make their assessment of whether these people were confident, charming, attractive, and, conf- and uh, confident. So they not only got the people to rate themselves, which rates self-confidence, but they also got judges to rate the overall appearance of confidence. So what did they actually find from this from the study, Laura? What they actually found out was that when people drink alcohol, they actually evaluate they actually evaluate themselves as more attractive, or at least you know less unattractive than what they originally thought. But this is actually an illusion, because when you compare their results and self-perceptions to the results of the judges, they actually have less, less, they score worse. So the judges gave them a realistic score, but the people rate themselves as being higher. The interesting part about this is, as well, that even if they do not consume a single drop of alcohol, if they think they have consumed alcohol, they still rate themselves as being more attractive and more confident. So what does this even mean? I mean, what well, what it means is that it, it suggests that there's some sort of autosuggestion um, 
that implies confidence uh, from people having this alcohol. Now, that may not specifically be tied to alcohol. A thing from public speaking and, uh, and, and presentating in general is that if you're comfortable, you tend to be confident. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of things that you can do to make people comfortable, and they tend to speak better like that. Whereas if you film someone straight out, they might be nervous and might be a bit weird. But if you get someone in a natural and confident and comfortable environment, they come across really, really great. The alcohol might be a cue to help make someone more comfortable and more relaxed, which may have made it easier for them, as opposed to someone who didn't think they had that. But it would be interesting to see if there are other cues that can similarly induce the same level, putting someone in pyjamas, putting someone in, a sim- in an environment that's familiar to them. Do you think alcohol became a cue for, to make people more um, comfortable or confident because of advertising or because of social culture or something like that? Well, that would also be really interesting because it'd be good to actually compare this to societies where there is not a strong relationship between alcohol and socialising, um, such as any Islamic countries uh, where alcohol use drinking is forbidden, which probably would definitely not have the same effect. So it's probably not something specifically associated with it. But it would be an interesting study to actually go through and compare the social the socio conditions of this. But what it has shown for the, for the control group that they did use, that the people actually rated themselves better than what they thought they, what independent experts rated them as, even if they didn't have any alcohol. So it does definitely imply a social or at least a, a, a psychological link to the alcohol. And that's why this research won an ignoble prize for psychology. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. So this week we talked about the ignoble prizes. Some fantastic research showing that dung beetles actually use the Milky Way to navigate. How alcohol and society can impact your self-confidence and visions of yourself, even if you don't actually drink anything. And how we could walk on water, like lizards do, if we were on the moon. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.